So we're going to talk about encouragement, something we all need. So we'll be in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 6. When God created this world, he made everything that we need. He's provided everything, and he doesn't give us encouragement just as a luxury, but because we need it. Uh, and a little encouragement, it goes a long way to help us persevere through difficulties, doesn't it? Just that encouraging word. Uh, Webster's 1828 Dictionary, it says, uh, encouragement is the act of giving courage or confidence of success, incitement to action or to practice, incentive. We all need that incentive that God gives. And it takes courage to be a good friend and a good neighbor, a loving spouse. Um, it takes courage to follow Jesus when the world is against you. And I'm, I'm blessed that God knows our needs. He gives us encouragement, but he actually wants us to be a source of encouragement to others, even when we're going through hard times, because everyone in this world will face hard times. Um, and there's so much in this world that that discourages us and makes our resolve weak, and it begins to wear us down. And as people who follow Jesus Christ, we have to ask ourselves, why do I look for comfort or peace in this world where there is no comfort or peace? Why, why do we get discouraged when we look to the wrong things instead of looking to Christ, who is our peace? And until we're willing to receive the encouragement that God has for us, we can't be the source of encouragement he would have us be to others. Have you guys ever refused encouragement? Someone tried to encourage you, you read something, and you're like, no, not interested. Like the pain was too great. You just couldn't receive it at that time. But may we be those who receive God's encouragement. Walking with Jesus by faith is more than going somewhere or doing something for God. It means being active in our Father's business wherever we are today. Because I could jump on a plane and go to Africa, but it doesn't mean that I'm serving the Lord by doing so. Jonah, when he was called to go to Nineveh, he went to Tarshish, right? He jumped on a ship and he went there. And God provided some encouragement, some incentive as he had him swallowed by a great fish. And for three days, he, he wallowed there. And he finally cried out to the Lord, and God heard him and delivered him. And then God told him the next step. And I find it really encouraging that God even would speak or use Jonah after he had disobeyed God. And God said, do this. And he said, no. And he still used him. He still spoke to him. And what, what hope there is for us then, what confidence we can have in God, that even when we get it wrong, and we don't walk in his ways. Um, that our confidence should not be in our call or in our ability, but in our gracious God who loves us and who has given everything for us. So let's pray, and then we will get into the text. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us and the encouragement you bring. Thank you for making us part of a body and that you speak to us. And you have much to say, and you're good. So we praise you, Lord. We pray that we would experience your love and your presence today, that we'd be drawn near to you, that we would hear your word and it would break our hearts, Lord. You would give us the encouragement we need and that we might be that source of encouragement through others by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so I do have a slide. It's uh, for those map or not map-oriented people of Paul's second missionary journey, and that's where we'll be beginning. So in Acts 16, 6, and you can follow along if you want in your Bibles or the path 
that they took. A lot of names you don't use very often. It says, now when they had gone through Phrygia into the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony, and we were staying in that city for some days. So our passage begins with Paul, Silas, and Timothy uh, following the leading of the Lord to preach the gospel. And they had begun their journey by going to churches that had been established and delivering the decrees given by the leaders in Jerusalem. And they were continuing west, and the Lord, it said the Holy Spirit, forbade them, and so they turned northward. And it's like they didn't exactly know where they were headed. They wanted to go to one place, but God's like, no, you need to go to this other place. The Bible doesn't say how long they were unclear about where they should go. But we can know they were not wasting time. They were not lost because they were walking in step with the Holy Spirit. He was guiding them where to go. Thanks for that slide. Doesn't it seem strange that the Lord would forbid them to be preaching the gospel when Jesus had said, you will be my witnesses in all the world? to every, every creature. Give the gospel. Paul ultimately would go to Ephesus. He would go into Asia, but this was not the time. God had it orchestrated. I like what Guzik said. He said, Paul was guided by hindrance. The Holy Spirit often guides as much by the closing of doors as he does by the opening of doors. Have you guys seen that to be true? That sometimes there's an open door, but other times there's a closed door. And it's like, well, I guess I'm not supposed to go that way. Is it ever wise to doubt God's wisdom concerning when he leads us or where he leads us? No, it's not wise. Do we do it? Oh, yeah, of course we do. We think the timing should be according to our schedule or our diary. But God has a plan, and we're part of that plan. It's kind of like if we question God's wisdom in his leading, it's almost like the kid in the back seat who who doesn't, they're on the motorway and he's shouting, are we there yet? Well, obviously not. If we were there, we would be stopped. Come on, pay attention. You didn't notice that we're in Canberra and we're going to Jindabyne. The sign, you didn't see that. But no, the kid doesn't understand. He doesn't read. He just, he's been in the car for more than five minutes and it's just, he's over it. And that's us. We're like that. While in Troas, during the night, Paul sees a vision and it was a Macedonian man. And he pleaded with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul and the others, they took it as a sign from God that that's where they were supposed to go. That would be the next step. And if you notice, there's a subtle shift in the pronouns used where it goes from them, in verse 10, to we. So this means Luke, the physician, the one who's writing the book of Acts, he joined up with them in Troas. That's where he joined them. And then he continued on to have a firsthand account for a lot of this book. So if they had gone east, uh, gone west from the beginning, they may not have met up with Luke and he would not have 
been uh, with them during this leg of the journey. So they agreed God had called them and that it's fitting when the Macedonian man said, please come and help us, what did they conclude? Well, God wants us to preach the gospel to them. Right? We think of help. We, don't, we may not think of the gospel as our first thing. Like, that person needs help. We might think something more practical, right? But the gospel is intensely practical because it's an abundant life. And it gives us access to God and places the spirit of God within us and connects us with a body of believers who can supply needs. And then we too are able to supply needs of others. So as pressing as a physical need may be, as useful it is to meet those needs, the gospel addresses our primary need to be right with God, to be brought into the family of God, to be connected with brothers and sisters in Christ. See, I can't meet the needs of everyone. Even if I tried to meet everyone's physical needs, I can't do it. But God can. And when you connect people with Jesus Christ, who is able to meet all needs, who is able to heal, to deliver, to save, to transform the hearts and minds of people. God, isn't it true? God can do for others what you cannot do for them. When they're completely beyond your reach, he is able to minister to them and to comfort them. You can try to comfort somebody, but it's not within you to do. Not to the degree that God can. Suffering of all kinds comes from sin that social justice alone cannot address. When someone asks for help, therefore, do we give them the gospel? Do we value the gospel? Usually we settle for less. The gospel helps, but it's actually more than help because it's life. And that's what people want. That's what people need, life, an eternal life through faith. Verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. They had had this vision of the Macedonian man they go to Macedonia, the north part of Greece, and it's pretty much without fanfare. They didn't run into this guy that they had seen, right? In fact, there was not even a Jewish synagogue there. To have a Jewish synagogue or to have a, a legitimate assembly, it would require 10 men. Well, there were not, obviously, there were not 10 men, and the, the, no men are mentioned, but there's devout women who would go and pray down by the waterside. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, at this point, they go down and sit with the women. They talk with them. And as they're speaking, there's a woman named Lydia. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. And it says she worshipped God. So that means she was uh, Jewish, Jewish or followed the Orthodox belief. And it says the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And this shows us how we need to rely upon God to open the hearts of people to receive the word of God. Too often I've been guilty, speaking for myself, of trying to change minds by facts rather than trusting God to transform their hearts through faith. It's ironic that people can be hindered by sharing the gospel because they feel like they don't know enough, right? 
Like, I don't know enough to share the gospel. But how much do you need to know? It's a fair question. Even if you had all knowledge, the physical strength to move mountains, you cannot change a mind or open a heart. You cannot. You can, you can instruct someone in the right way, but you cannot move them. They could be in the wrong, and it doesn't matter. You don't have the power to do it. But God, he can open a heart. He can change a mind. He can shift someone's belief where they had it in this, this idol at one point, but then they come to the living God. Let's be prepared to boldly speak forth the gospel, but knowing the reception of that word, it's God's work. He will do it. So the Lord opened Lydia's heart. She heeded the word spoken by Paul. And this is the truth. If we want to see people born again and saved, we must give them the word of God. Because it's the preaching of the word of God that makes children of God. You cannot force anyone into the kingdom of God by law, and you cannot save their souls by love alone. Because the love of God, it will compel us to speak words. Words are really important in communicating, right? We were talking the other day about watching a movie without seeing or reading the words. It's very frustrating, isn't it? Have you ever actually tried to sit through a movie? Abel was saying he was on the plane and you know the headphones weren't working. Uh, closed captioning wasn't working, and he's watching this cartoon, and he has no idea what's going on. You know, the jokes, can't pick those up. Uh, the, the plot twists, the punchlines, the, the funny sayings, it's all lost, and you're just trying to say, what is going on? Trying to figure it out. And if we don't speak the gospel, if we don't give them the words of life, how can they know the truth? They can't know it. They won't know the punchline. They won't know the end. They won't even know what was happening on the way. Perhaps you've prayed for the salvation of others. Well, have you spoken to them specifically about the gospel? Have you laid it out for them so they can understand it? Because how can people receive the gospel if they've never heard it before, if it's not been made plain to them? Paul put it well in Romans 10, 14. He said, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So someone who's going to proclaim the truth, they need to hear it. And so it's for us to share with them. We're called as Christians to be ambassadors for Christ. And an ambassador is someone who puts forth um, a positive view of the one they represent. And as Christians, we are to love people. We are to be those ambassadors of the kingdom of God because our citizenship is in heaven. And we are to demonstrate the love of God, the grace and the forgiveness of God, the mercy, the generosity of God, and to speak the truth in love. And as we follow the leading of the Spirit, he gives us opportunities to do that. God is always going to do his part. You don't have to worry about that. We have to do ours, and he'll help us to do it. Paul was obedient to go, and he spoke, right? He, he got the vision. He went. He started speaking. He didn't see the Macedonian man, but here's these ladies down by the water, and so he's talking to them. He gives them the gospel, and one of them, her heart was changed. And the Bible says that Jesus is willing to leave 99 to go after just one. He values the one. He values you. He comes to you today, and he seeks to save the lost. 
Lydia, she places her trust in Christ. She's baptized. Her whole house also comes to faith. And this shows water baptism. It's not something to work towards. Like, you know, I'll get to that level someday. When you're born again, baptism is identification with Christ and obedience to him. Just like we're going to take communion later, that's something that we do because Jesus has commanded us to. does not save you, but because we're saved, we are baptized. And so she says, if you've considered me faithful, please stay with me. And so it's clear that they saw her as a faithful lady because they all lodged with her. Verse 16, now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Paul, they're going to prayer with Silas. And they're met by the slave girl who was possessed, it says, by a spirit of divination. And divination, it means to predict the future. And some can do it supernaturally. Uh, she was doubly enslaved, actually, because she was a slave to these human masters, but she was also possessed uh, by a spirit, an unclean spirit that uh, she was in bondage to. Let's not make the mistake of relegating demonic possession to myth or ancient superstition. Whilst many fortune tellers and card layers and astrologers are sham artists skilled at reading people, some mediums and spiritists do tap into demonic forces to do their uh, services, let's just say. And the existence of Satan or spirits ought not to trouble a follower of Jesus because God and his authority has created them and has authority and power over all. So we don't have to be afraid. Now I have a slide that I wanted to share. I was uh, in para for something. I think I was buying a computer part. And I walked in, and there's this shop. I don't know if you can read that, but this is a, a holy spiritualist, palm-reading astrologer center, can handle any problem. All religions welcome. It was just, a, I was like, wow, this is interesting. So I was looking at it, and experts and bringing good luck, 100% guarantee. But the thing that I wanted to point out, do you see over here? Visa, FPOS, MasterCard, American Express, down here. Same thing. There's like 12 different little reminders. This is the payment we take. So anybody's welcome, and we'll gladly take your money in all these ways, right? So thanks for that. Nothing has changed, okay? In this, this uh, demon-possessed girl who would give, she would tell a fortune for the rich people, those who are willing to pay. And she, uh, she made them great profit by what she would do. So as they're walking along to go to prayer, this girl, she follows them day after day, shouting. So she cries out. She's like, these men, they worship the true God. They show the way of salvation. And finally, Paul addressed the spirit who spoke through the girl, and he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. 
and immediately the spirit left her. Now, does it seem strange to you that Paul would cast out a demon who's actually telling the truth in this case? You know, was anything that was said incorrect? These men are the servants of the Most High God. You're like, yes, okay. Who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Absolutely, that's right what we're doing. But the source was impure. If you were going to apply for a job, would you be agreeable or glad if there was a rapist, a known rapist and murderer in prison who took it upon himself to write a lengthy uh, letter of recommendation of how you were the person for the job? No, I don't need that kind of publicity, please. I don't want to be associated with you. Because I, and to bring down Jesus then to the level of an idol, to bring, um, to make that demon your mouthpiece, So Paul was not having it, and he said, come out of her, and she was delivered. The girl suddenly comes to herself. The masters realize he's gone. They can't use her for money anymore, and so they they grabbed Paul and Silas, it says, to bring them before the authorities. Now, because of the the accusations that they're going to level against them in the next section, it's probably because of their Jewish appearance and their ancestry. Timothy was only uh, half Jewish, he was half Greek, and Luke is also believed to have been a Gentile. In Colossians 4, Paul grouped Luke, the beloved physician, with Demas. He did not put him with the circumcision. So for whatever reason, they singled out these two guys, Paul because he had said it, and Silas because he was like him. And they bring him before the authorities in verse 20. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them. And the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. We see anti-Semitism alive and well in Rome. There was no mention of what Paul had done, that he had cast out the demon, that now the real reason was they had just lost their source of income. They didn't care about the slave girl. They just cared about the money she would make them. And uh, their false accusations would stick because they were foreigners. They said, these Jews coming in here, they're teaching us stuff that they don't. it doesn't agree with the Roman uh, lifestyle and their appearance. Therefore, their guilt was, you know, pretty obvious before the magistrates. And they, they stripped them of their clothing and beat them with rods. Now, the text does not provide much detail, but being beaten with rods is basically being hit with a stick until it's bloody. So it's, it's a thrashing. It's quite a beating. Uh, it's not just a red mark. They hit you until you are literally cut open by being hit with a stick. And, uh, but this wasn't enough. The prefects like to throw those guys in prison and make sure they're secure. So they put them in the dungeon, in the innermost part of the prison, and in stocks. So that's when your feet are lifted off the ground and you're in a very uncomfortable position, just having been beaten and opened up with a stick. Very uncomfortable. This undoubtedly added much suffering to the injuries they had already suffered. I doubt 
when Paul was in Troas and he had the vision of the Macedonian man that this is how he this day was going to end. You know, he, he's like, yeah, we're going to go and give the gospel to that guy. But then he's finding himself in this rough situation. And I just put myself in his shoes and say, well, how would I respond given this uh, trial, this tribulation? They faced such pain at the present, an uncertain future. But these guys, they took courage in God, which pierced through the darkness with praise. They praised God. Verse 25, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Given their wounds, being bound in the stocks, likely sleep was out of the question. It was very uncomfortable, but these guys aren't wallowing in their misery. They are praying and praising God, and to a point where everyone's listening to them. They can be heard throughout the prison. And as they're isolated and bound, they're like, well, they can beat us, they can bind us, but we can still pray, we can still praise. And so their hearts were, were free to glorify God. I wonder how the hearts of those other criminals or maybe falsely accused criminals, how their hearts were moved of what they heard in the darkness. And then suddenly the whole place moves. It's shaking. It's an earthquake, but more than an earthquake because the doors all swing open, all their chains fall off. God had a hand in that. It reminds me of when Peter and the apostles were threatened in Acts 4.31. It says, and when they had prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So God shook the place. This literal occurrence in the prison, it provides imagery for the reality of the Christian, that prayer and praise cannot be chained by hard times or painful circumstances. In fact, it's pain that prompts us to worship God freely and more intensely. We can be bound, we can be imprisoned by pains and trials, but God nor his word is chained. He is free to minister, and we're free to praise him. Now, the jailer, it said he was asleep. He hadn't been, maybe he had heard them singing, but he fell asleep, but the, the earthquake woke him up. And he sees all the doors open. He's like, oh, no. Punishment for losing one prisoner was torture and death. And so he, he was not interested in that. So he drew his sword preparing to kill himself. And Paul called out to him and says, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Verse 29. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. 
the man who had put them in the stocks, it says he runs in, trembling. He falls before them, and he brings them out and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I don't know why he asked this in particular. It doesn't tell us, but there's a few things we can know. We know that he did not know the way of salvation himself. He knew there was something he needed to do, and he believed that Paul and Silas could be the ones who showed him the way of salvation. Interestingly, that is what that demon-possessed girl had said. So whether he, I don't know how he knew that they would know the way of salvation. Perhaps he had been walking along and he heard this. And he's just like, huh. Or maybe they were mocking them when they put them in the stocks and said, huh, these guys, let's see if, who can save them from this place. Like, I don't know how he came up with this, but he knew and he was on, he was asking the right people. And it prompted thoughts in me. Because we don't know why he asked, it prompted me to think, well, when I'm suffering, when I'm having a hard time, do I exhibit the peace and joy to praise God as Paul and Silas did in prison? Would people I know, people I hardly know, see that, uh, believe that I would be someone who could tell them the way to salvation and eternal life through Jesus? And if someone came up to me who was panicked and fearful and they wanted to know the way of salvation, what would I say to them? How would I speak to them? The keeper of the prison was broken. He was shaken. There was no deep theological discussion necessary here for this thirsty soul. He is just said, he's told, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And here we see the simplicity of the gospel. By grace through faith in Jesus. You believe in Jesus, that he's your Lord, that he's your master and king. You will be saved. A child doesn't need to be able to explain scientifically or medically how he was conceived to be able to recognize who his parents are. Right? And in the same way, you don't need to have the deepest uh, level of theological knowledge Uh, to know every scripture that pertains to it. You just have to know the basics, that Jesus Christ, he came to save sinners. He died on the cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead, as he said. He is now alive and at the right hand of the Father, and he can save anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in him. That's the basic gospel. And Jesus Christ can transform your life. And we see it in our own lives, those who have believed in the lives of others. Who are born again. Everyone who's saved, however, you have to believe in the Lord Jesus. There are some, there is that necessity, right? There is something to do. You don't earn salvation through trying to do good or being baptized. You are, you receive the gift of salvation through believing on Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse uh, Romans 10, verse 9 says. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So conversion, it's more than words, but a work that God does in the heart of a person that results in a new heart, a new life, a hunger for the word of God, a desire to do what pleases God. And everyone must make their own decision if they're going to trust Jesus or not. The man was so hungry for the gospel, he brings Paul and Silas home. Verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. So they discussed it at greater length. They began to share with him the scriptures 
and he and his whole house were saved and baptized that night. And this is midnight, right? This is in the middle of the night. There was no time to wait, no time to lose. Uh, he rejoiced. It said he, he washed their stripes, he fed them a meal, and he rejoiced in the salvation he had received. Is there anything usual about this situation? It's completely unusual, really. I mean, you've got in the midnight, midnight hour, stocks, praising God in the darkness, earthquake, everyone's shackles fall off. This man comes in about to commit suicide. I mean, he was right there. Now he has been born again. He's been baptized and he's rejoicing. He's praising God. And this is the transformation that God brings into a life. That Jesus Christ is the authority and power to cast out demons, set captives free, bring whole families to salvation through faith in Christ. How we should value and treasure the gospel. How, how we should honor and reverence our Lord. Verse 35. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, Let these men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. After Paul and Barnabas were, uh, Barnabas, Paul and Silas were uh, kindly treated, they were brought back into prison, and the next day word came, all right, let those guys go. No explanation. And uh, Paul wasn't having this. He says, you know, we're Roman citizens. We may be Jewish, yes, but we're also Roman citizens. And a Roman citizen had the right to, no Roman citizen was beaten with rods, number one. Number two, there was always a trial which had not been done. Uh, and they would not be imprisoned without a trial. So all these errors had been made by these magistrates. And he says, you've did all, done all that publicly. Like you've, you've humiliated us. You made us appear to be criminals publicly. And now we're just supposed to leave secretly with that damage to our reputation? No. If you want us to leave, you come and release us yourselves. And it says those magistrates are like, ooh, that's not good. We didn't know they were Romans. All right, so they're covering themselves a bit, and they go and they plead with them, and they beg and say, oh, we're so sorry about that. Could you please leave? It's not a good look for us. So the, the damage that had been done was, was repaired as far as their reputation, that these magistrates would come themselves, release them from prison, and it was all good. Thus vindicated, they did. They did leave, but there was a stop on the way. Verse 40. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Paul and Silas, they departed from prison, went back to the home of Lydia and the brethren who gathered there. Isn't that cool? There's already brethren. Her family had come to Christ, but there were others who believed, who assembled there. She wasn't afraid to meet and, and offer hospitality to men who had been recently beaten and imprisoned. And it says, when Paul and Silas had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. And I ask you, who encouraged who? Read it carefully. It wasn't that Paul and Silas were all bummed out because of this rough experience. They 
encouraged the brethren. They were the encouragers. They didn't didn't need encouragement from people to keep going. I guarantee you they were encouraged. But what it points out here is those who had been put in the stocks, those who had been falsely accused, those who still had uh, bleeding stripes on their bodies, they encouraged others, the brethren. They didn't whinge or complain about the illegal proceedings and whether or not they were going to take further legal action against them. Or No, they spoke about how they were praising the Lord at midnight and how God shook that place and how God shook that jailer out of his slumber and how he opened his heart to receive the word of God. Not only that, but his whole family was saved and baptized that night. How they were encouraged to hear this. Instead of focusing on our pains, our injustices suffered. It's so good for us when we praise God. Praying to God, not from a helpless position, but knowing that we're his children and he will hear our cries. He will give consolation. He will provide the help in his time. And for them, it came in a night, right? They were released the next day. And sure, they bore in their bodies those scars for the rest of their lives. But it was for the sake of Christ the one who had been so wounded for them, and they rejoiced. May that heart be in us. Could you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 34, starting in verse 17. David wrote this psalm at a challenging point in his life. The king, his father-in-law, sought to kill him. He had quite a militia to go up after him, and David had to flee. And so he went by Nob, and he had no food, and so he asked for it, and they gave him some of the showbread that they had on hand and took Goliath's sword. He was in a, in a place where he wasn't looking to God. He wasn't trusting in God. And, and it came to the point where he's like, man, things are really bad in Israel. I'm going to try my luck over with the Philistines. It had to be pretty bad, right? So he goes before King uh, Abimelech, the Philistine king, and he's, he's hoping to fly under the radar, just get a place where he can hide out for a while. But then they realize, hey, that's the guy that killed Goliath, huh? right? Don't they sing songs about him? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David's like, oh, and I have Goliath's sword on me too. It's just not, it's not good. Very bad situation. And uh, so what he did is he pretended to be insane and he's drooling on himself and he's shouting and kind of trying to climb the walls and the king's like what is this what do i need madmen that you bring this madman in my presence get him out of here so david left and then he wrote this this is part of what he wrote it wasn't his quick thinking that saved him that day it was god who heard his prayers and delivered him psalm 34 17 the righteous cry out and the lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. We are righteous not because we always do the right thing. 
but we are made righteous through faith in Jesus. And it says here, when the righteous cry out, the Lord hears and delivers from all their troubles. God was near Paul and Silas as they cried out to God that night, as they praised him in the dungeon. And God will deliver you too if you cry out to him, because he's near to those who have a broken heart. And if you say, my heart's broken, I'm beat down. Well, so was Paul and Silas that night, and they praised the Lord. They trusted that he heard them, and he answered them. Now, in light of the communion, we'll partake together. Did you notice in there, verse 20, it kind of shifts to saying he. It's saying the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Well, in the New Testament, this verse is used by John to, to say this is confirmation of uh, the word being fulfilled when Jesus was crucified. Jesus was arrested. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was scourged. He was crucified, though a righteous man. And he cried out to God, didn't he? And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had not forsaken him because God kept his word that not one of his bones would be broken. John 19, 35 through 37 says, And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. So, about a thousand years before Jesus goes to the cross, David's writing this. And he says, not one of the bones would be broken. And God was faithful to keep his word. Not only to just prevent a bone being broken, but he was raised on the third day. And we can be assured that the Lord redeems the souls of his servants. It seems a strange thing that we should be encouraged by those who are wounded, like Paul and Silas, that we could have encouragement through the wounds Jesus suffered on Calvary. Isn't it encouraging, thinking back to Jonah, that when the people asked for a sign, he says, I'll give you a sign. You'll receive no sign but that of Jonah. Jonah. He pointed to him and said, as he was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so I will be three nights and three three days and nights in the belly of the earth. So he's saying, that will prove once and for all my authority when I rise from the dead. I mean, Jonah, as far as they're concerned, they committed him to the deep. He was gone. But he was vomited out, Jesus. He was uh, raised to life eternal, glorified. If the love of God demonstrated through Jesus Christ on the cross Dying for you and his resurrection does not encourage you. What will? What could possibly encourage you when he has done so much for us? Let's praise him who's provided such comfort and deliverance and salvation to all who believe on him. I mean, what a savior. So if I could have the uh, worship team come forward. We're going to receive communion together. So this is for believers who, in identification and obedience to Christ, we receive of the bread and of the cup. The bread symbolizes the broken body of Jesus. 
and the cup, his blood that was shed. And since we've been born again through trusting in him, right? We read it today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. If you have done that, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, um, then you are welcome and encouraged to receive communion with us together. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world. Thank you that on him our sin was laid and we have been washed clean. Thank you for his body that was broken so that we could be made whole. Thank you that through his stripes we have been healed that, and his blood has been shed and sprinkled many nations. Lord, thank you for washing us clean. The scriptures say that without the shedding of blood there is no remission. And Jesus, as the perfect Lamb of God, has died for us. We can be washed clean and made righteous by your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, your kindness and your mercy, the compassion you've shown us that we will, while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. May we be proclaimers of this love, the way that we live, the way that we see others. And may our, our hearts swell with praise to you, Lord, for all that you've accomplished through Christ, through his death and resurrection. Lord, we, we rejoice in you. We glory in you for you. You alone are wise. Everything you do is good. We worship and magnify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together.